Chapter Ten of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Ten, The Sands. The pedestrian who makes a pilgrimage to Cartmel Priory Church will probably halt for a moment where the road forks close to the village to read the directions on several distance stones let into the walls. One of these, bearing the date 1836, reads, Lancaster over the sands, 15 miles. Another, undated, adds, Ulverston over sands, 7 miles. Without the qualification, over the sands, the distances will probably be three times as great. We have seen that it was mainly owing to this short route by the sands that the isolated districts of Furness and Cartmel were included within the county. But these routes, it need hardly be said, are not in use today. The peninsula of Cartmel is isolated by the sands of two wide estuaries, one on each side, and from time immemorial it was incumbent on the priory to provide guides for travellers crossing the Cartmel and Ulverston sands on the west, and the Kent sands on the east. Similarly, Conishead Priory, had to provide a guide across the Leven estuary, and the ruins on Chapel Island, which we saw as a speck in our view from the high Coniston fells in the first chapter, are probably the remains of an oratory for the use of travellers by this route. We spoke in that chapter of the fording of the Mersey, where it is two miles wide, opposite to Hale. From that point, right round to the county boundary in the middle of the Duddon estuary, Lancashire is bounded on the south and west by an almost unbroken belt of sands. Monotonous as these sands may be in places, they have features which add greatly to the beauty of the county. The dead line of them is broken by six important estuaries, those, namely, of the Mersey, Ribble, Loon, Kent, Leven and Duddon, all of which were fordable in early times. The sweep of Morecambe Bay and the three northern estuaries is made specially beautiful by the graded background of hills rising from the fresh green gorse-fringed foreground of limestone to the heights that lie beyond the lakes. For here we may say, with a slight transference of the alliteration, that the mountains look on Lancashire and Lancashire looks on the sea. Many beautiful pictures of the views across these sands are known the most famous being Turner's sketch made at Haysham during one of his early tours. This lovely drawing, wrote Ruskin, with the group it introduces, shows the state of Turner's mind in its first perfect grasp of English scenery, entering into all its humblest details with intense affection, shrinking from no labour in the expression of this delight, not only in the landscape, but the sky, which is always more lovely in his English drawings than in any other. In the Haysham, there is more design and more work in the sky alone than would make a dozen of common watercolour drawings, and all this done without losing for a moment the sincere simplicity of the wild country and homely people in any morbid or timid idealisation. Haysham claims more than a moment's notice on other grounds. We are not referring to the recent exploitation of it as a port by a famous railway company. It was the chief port of Lancaster, by the way, in the 14th century. It has been said that the churches, the cross, and the various carved stones to be seen there make Haysham one of the most interesting spots in the country from an archaeological point of view. There is even a tradition that St. Patrick landed here after being shipwrecked in Morecambe Bay 
and the tiny chapel of St. Patrick that stands on a rock above the sea has been described as the only example in England of a single-celled chapel of assured pre-conquest date. Professor Baldwin Brown, however, cites some possible exceptions in Cornwall, and adds that the Haysham Chapel may actually be a specimen of Irish handiwork. Into the vexed question of the date of this little oratory, and of the rock graves and sculptured stones, we cannot enter here. Haysham is a resort of tourists today, as well as a port of embarkation for Ireland, but its isolation a century ago was remarkable. Familiar as the Haysham picture will be Turner's and David Cox's pictures of the crossing of the Lancashire Sands, showing motley groups of travellers making their way across the wet estuary, on foot or on horseback, in cart or coach, and there are various sketches of the other estuaries. The crossing of the sands, now a thing of the past, afforded a very picturesque subject. In his very last published chapter, Ruskin penned these striking sentences, and though they refer to sands on this same coast a little further north, they are equally applicable here. For myself, the impressions of these sands are a part of the greatest teaching that ever I received during the joy of youth. For Turner, they became the most pathetic that formed his character in the prime of life. But to the living reader, I have this to say very earnestly, that the whole glory and blessing of these sacred coasts depended on the rise and fall of their eternal seas. Over sands which the sunset gilded with its withdrawing glow, from the measureless distances of the west, on the ocean horizon, or veiled in silvery mists, or shadowed with fast-flying storms, of which, nevertheless, every cloud was pure, and the winter snow blanched in the twilight. The passage across the sands would of course be safest at the time of spring tides, when the outgoing waters would be sucked furthest from the land. In olden times the journey was made daily, a little caravan collecting under proper guidance. Sometimes the guide from one side conducted his party to a point where they were met by a guide from the opposite shore, and this office of conductor would remain for centuries in one family. The constantly shifting channel, the frequent storms and mists, made the journey perilous enough at some periods of the year, and there was an annual toll of human life at these crossings. The coucher book of Furness Abbey shows that the abbot often lost his case in distant courts, perhaps in Yorkshire, for instance, because he was prevented by weather conditions from crossing the sands in time. In fine weather, the journey of eleven miles from Hest Bank, a little south of Bolton-le-Sands, to Kent's Bank just beyond Grange, and the shorter passages across the Leven and Duddon estuaries, would be very beautiful. Starting from Hest Bank, the whole coast from Peel Castle right round to Lancaster would be visible. Almost due east could be seen the broad flat top of Ingleborough. To the north would rise the steep crag of Wharton, topped by its ancient hill fort. Wharton, the home of George Washington's ancestors, then the green fells of Arnside, and sweeping to the left, the beautifully wooded shores of the Kent, the dark Cartmel fells in the middle distance, and far beyond these the great mountain wall towards which the eye reaches out longingly, the mountains of the English Lake District. The journey across the Leven, though not one-third as long, was accounted the more dangerous, owing to the caprices of the stream. Wordsworth has described it in the tenth book of the Prelude. Over the smooth sands of Leven's ample estuary lay my journey, 
and beneath a genial sun with distant prospect among gleams of sky and clouds and intermingling mountain tops in one inseparable glory clad this was in seventeen ninety four when wordsworth not long returned from france was still burning with sympathy with the girondists and one of the most graphic incidents pictured in the prelude occurred curiously in the midst of these levin sands his description of the scene corresponds exactly with the pictures of the crossing to which we have referred above all the plain lay spotted with a variegated crowd of vehicles and travellers horse and foot wading beneath the conduct of their guide in loose procession through the shallow stream of inland waters the great sea meanwhile heaved at safe distance far retired they were near the rocky island on which the tiny chapel stood when one of the motley crowd that was approaching from the opposite shore shouted without any introduction as the latest news robespierre is dead and in his transport and gratitude to everlasting justice wordsworth poured forth on these open sands a hymn of triumph in which the young prophet saw earth marching firmly towards righteousness and peace and then lifting his eye to the diadem of mountains that closed the northern horizon like a crown of burning seraphs in the empyrean under whose shadow lay unseen the pastoral vales among whose happy fields he had grown up from childhood his thoughts went back to those days of his boyhood and recalling a visit with his youthful companions to furness abbey he was once more in thought skimming that very shore as along the margin of the moonlight sea we beat with thundering hoofs the level sand but lancashire can boast other sands besides the broad flat stretches that fringe the semicircle of morecambe bay sands that can also show their gilded sunsets their measureless distances and their fast flying storms and that have in addition a glory all their own for the sands that fringe the river estuary taken in a wide sense are backed on the landward side by long ridges of sand-hills the west coast of the fylde is not so defended the enormous quantity of sand deposited continually along these coasts to such an extent that the land is rapidly marching seawards is evidently brought by sea currents setting northward from the mouth of the mersey as great areas of this drift dry in the sun loose sand is blown across them landwards and this accumulates against any obstacle till it overtops it and is driven beyond on these undulating hills the little sand lizard may be seen basking in abundance along these shores nest the terns and the various wading birds but it is for their flora that they are justly most famous the seasonal change of colour as one species succeeds another is very noticeable to those who reside here for a number of years in succession i have visited the southport coast on purpose to see this wonderful display my companion on these occasions mr h l earl the entomologist who first pointed out these beauties to me tells me that to a naturalist who roams these sandhills constantly the most striking feature is the effect produced by strong sunlight upon sand and sky when you take your stand at the bottom of one of the big craters and see nothing but sand and sky the sun gives a golden hue to the former that seems to enhance the deep blue above you so striking is this that you might mentally shift the scene to the Lond or to the nile country and all that is needed to complete the illusion is a stilted shepherd 
are a caravan of camels. As regards the flora, we may say that the four miles of Southport separate two distinct districts. To the north of this much-frequented watering place, beyond the hangars, lies a long stretch of salt marsh, washed at high tides. Here in early June we have stood and calculated that we had before us perhaps two square miles carpeted with a continuous and superb growth of the sea-pink or thrift, as thick as a clover crop. You must be careful to catch just the right moment if you would appreciate to the full this wonderful bloom. It dies down in time, and is followed by the purple blue of the sea aster, in patches rather than in great masses. To the south of the town, on the other hand, are the sand hills, and here the thrift is not to be found. In early spring the prevailing colour is the pale glaucous green of the marum grass, with frequent patches of the dwarf willow so dark as to look like burnt grass in the distance. On the seaward side, the flat sands will be lined with the purple of the sea rocket. Spring and summer advance very slowly on the sand hills, and for a long time they look to the casual observer a mere waste of sand and pools. The flowers are abundant in early July, but their display is never obtrusive. Thus the pink gentian and the perfoliate yellow wart, another gentian, are seen everywhere, as well as the pretty brown and yellow orchid, Epipactis latifolia, which shelters under the dwarf willow. Not until the latter part of July do you see the gold of the ragwort, and in places the evening primrose. By the month of August the flats near the railway will be crowded with a pretty yellow hawkbit. At the same time, that rare and most beautiful flower, the grass of Parnassus, is it not one of the most beautiful of all flowers, is seen growing here in abundance, its chaste ivory whiteness contrasting strongly with the pink flowers of the rest harrow and the red-purple glory of the viper's bugloss. The species of evening primrose found growing in profusion along the shore of St. Anne's is apparently not identical with those seen near Southport. This is not the place to enter into technicalities of this kind, which have been discussed exhaustively by Mr. Charles Bailey in the Proceedings of the Manchester Literary and Philosophical Society and the Manchester Field Club. The flower is clearly of North American origin. We may, however, venture to repeat here what Mr. Bailey has said with regard to this and other alien flowers found on this shore. He gives a list of more than 40 species comprised in this adventitious flora appearing at St. Anne's and has no hesitation in attributing its occurrence here to the sweepings of corn ships and docks, and the sifting of grain imports used as food for poultry. The sandhills of St. Anne's have been used for many years for housing poultry, and when the pens are removed, a flora appears which is quite distinct from that indigenous to the district. Several species of evening primrose are included in this flora. There are flowers found on the Southport shore, of which botanists speak with bated breath, and which we dare not even mention here. But the display of the shore by no means exhausts the flora of Southport. When, near the end of the 18th century, visitors used to go down to the North Meols coast to bathe, there would be sandhills where we now see the broad esplanade and the spacious Lord Street, and the bathers obtained what accommodation they could in the cottages on the shore. Even when Duke's Folly had been erected, it was only used in the summer months. 
Behind the sandhills came the low flat marsh, and here even to-day the ditches cut in the peat are covered in the proper season with the stately lilac bloom of the water-violet, the delicate three-lobed blossom of the little frog-bit, the rare and beautiful water-soldier, and the water-dropwort. And if we push further inland still, we shall come upon such prizes as the flowering rush, the deep blue of the rare marsh gentian, the greater and lesser reed-mace, and several species of the burr-reed. But these attractions have drawn us away from the sands, the subject of the present chapter. End of chapter 10